No one really knows what the end game is, but we're definitely seeing it come apart at the seams. Hello there from Bedford, UK. How are you all? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by the mighty Kraken, the best place to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got another monster panel from Real Vision. I've got Nick Carter, Tour de Mister, Robert Breedlove and Alex Leishman, where I ask what is next for Bitcoin. But before that, I do have a message from my amazing sponsors. So first up, we have BlockFi, the future of Bitcoin and financial services. So with BlockFi, you can open up an interest account, start earning money on your Bitcoin, and you can use your Bitcoin as collateral and take out a USD loan. And right now, they've got a badass special offer for new customers. You can get double interest bonus if you fund your BlockFi account by July the 18th. That means for the month of August, you'll be earning twice as much as normal. All you have to do is enter the promo code 2x when signing up. Just enter the number 2 followed by an X. That's promo code 2x. If you want to find out more, head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Also, let's talk about Kraken and why they are the very best place for buying Bitcoin. Firstly, they have world-class security. That means they are the most trusted cryptocurrency exchange on the market. You can go out there, you can look at lots of other exchanges, but they are the most trusted. No hacker is going to get your Bitcoin out of your Kraken account. And with their 24-7, 365 customer support, whatever issue you have, wherever you are, they are going to help you out. And they have the most comprehensive suite of tools for buying Bitcoin. At Kraken.com, it could not be easier to sign up and start buying. And with their beautiful mobile-first app, you can buy Bitcoin on the go. So if you're down the pub, if you're having a socially distanced beer, now the pubs have ended their lockdown, and you're thinking, you know what? I want some more Bitcoin. You can do it there, on the go. And with their margin trading, futures, and OTC desk, Kraken has every option covered for you. There is no better place to trade Bitcoin. Find out more at kraken.com or download the app, which is available for the iPhone and Android. Just search for Kraken Pro, which is K-R-A-K-E-N-P-R-O. All right, so onto the show. And this is another panel from Real Vision's virtual conference, The Crypto Gathering. Last week, I put out a panel held with Rao Powell, Caitlin Long, and Travis Kling, which was a massive episode. So I highly recommend you giving that one a listen. The team at Real Vision gave me free reign to host these panels on whatever topics I wanted to cover and release them out on my show. And they're both monsters. So this one, when they came to me, they said, look, we've got Nick Carter, Tour de Mister, Robert Breedlove, and Alex Leishman. What do you want to discuss? I was like, fuck, that is a panel. We've really got to use this opportunity. So I was like, you know what? I want to talk about what's next for Bitcoin. We've got this crazy, broader economic situation going on right now. And I want to talk about where Bitcoin fits into this. We have mass awareness. Anywhere I go, where people are like, hey, man, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, I've got a Bitcoin podcast. Nobody asks what Bitcoin is anymore. They say they don't understand it. They're like, what the fuck is that? I don't get it. Is it a scam? But nobody ever says, I've never heard of that. So we have mass awareness. So I want to talk about what are the challenges for adoption? What are the challenges for getting people over the line? So in this panel, we discuss the barriers to entry, Bitcoin's value proposition, and how it fits into the current economic situation and what the future holds. It was fascinating to have all these amazing minds in Bitcoin together to discuss these subjects. We do get in some of the key properties of Bitcoin, but it does stay quite top level. The conference was aimed at Bitcoiners, but it was also aimed at broader people interested in finance and money. So, yeah, I tried to keep it top level, but I hope you enjoy this. I think it's a monster. You got any questions, got any feedback, you know you can hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Just a couple of closing notes. 
I do want you to check out my other show, Defiance. I've got loads of cool interviews and mini documentaries there. That's it, defiance.news. And I also need to shout out and big thanks to my buddy Luke Martin. I've been playing poker with him every week and he's uh, kindly been donating his Bitcoin to me. So big thanks to you, Luke. Thanks every week for coming on, playing and, and donating me your Bitcoin. All right, hope you enjoy the show. Have a great weekend and I will see you soon. Right, we're live. Hello, everyone. Uh, an amazing panel we've got here. Um, we're joined by Nick Carter from Castle Island Ventures, someone I've interviewed a few times. We've got two of them. He's also been on my show a bunch of times. Robert Breedlove, I've recently met, interviewed for the first time recently. And Alex, we had uh, we had dinner in San Francisco recently, but I've never actually That's interviewed right. you. So when Real Vision approached me about uh, sessions to do, I came up with two ideas. One I did yesterday, and then um, based on this panel, I kind of like the idea of kind of what now for Bitcoin. One of the things I've talked about quite regularly to people, especially as I travel quite a lot with my podcast, I very rarely meet anyone who's not heard of Bitcoin. So we've hit a mass awareness stage. Whenever I meet somebody randomly, it can be in an airport or a bar or whatever, and they say, what do you do? I say, I have a Bitcoin podcast. I never get the question, oh, what's Bitcoin? It, just, it never happens. But I do get a range of answers, and some people skeptical, some people inquisitive. So we've 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 reached mass awareness. Everyone has heard of Bitcoin now. So I'm kind of interested in like what's next. I don't really want to use the term mass adoption because I, I think that's a, a loaded point. But I, I do want to see more adoption uh, and more use case. So I want to work through that that today. And I've got a number of questions, and I, I will direct them to each of you. And I think I'll probably just start with Tua because you're in the top left of my screen. Um, so, Tua, a starting point for me is I think there is a, a big gulf between someone like any of us who has a very deep understanding of Bitcoin, and then maybe somebody, one of these people I randomly meet, who has heard of Bitcoin, but they don't really understand it. There's a huge gulf there. And I'm starting personally to think that perhaps in some ways, Bitcoin has a reputation problem, not even that it's just a negative reputation, but it has a problem in, in trying to explain to people what it is, because it is so complicated. What, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, of course, uh, there is a, a, a bit of a reputation problem. And also, I think Bitcoin has been misunderstood. Like Bitcoin has stayed itself, like it hasn't really changed in a long time, like since inception, basically. But I think the narratives around it, and Nick has actually done some good work around that, the narratives around it has have changed. And early on, Bitcoin was often promoted as this kind of e-cash, e, you know, the, the kind of uh, some kind of currency to spend online. And I think to some extent that that was, that was misguided. I think Bitcoin is much more of a digital gold. And, and once you start looking at it that way, that the scarcity, the censorship resistance, that that's really the, the highlight then, you know, some of the speculative interest changes, like there's less short-term interest. So I think that's, that's been an important part. Uh, and then in the short term, like why hasn't there been more interest? I think the short answer is just that the price has been pretty much flat for two and a half years, but it has been very volatile also. And so that scares uh, retail people. And also, I mean, if you're in a hedge fund and you're like momentum driven, like you, you might get scared as well because you see these 50 percent crashes happen but yeah i mean i think that the appeal going forward is just uh, which i'm sure we'll talk about is 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 massive and, and it's becoming more and more interesting as you know we see more and more money creation all around the world uh, it really shows bitcoin is shining as a, a scarce asset and a liquid asset that's really important and of course censorship resistance is now more than ever going to be interesting uh, for people to have. 
Yeah, I think the um, the change in narratives is something that Plan B actually highlighted within his model that we've all been uh, looking at recently. And Nick, two have mentioned you there, so I'll let you jump in next. Uh, any thoughts on Bitcoin's reputation? Yeah, it's interesting. Tour said it. You know, Bitcoin is largely static, and the world changes around it. You know, the way that people perceive Bitcoin has changed. Initially, it wasn't really suitable for much aside from spending on, you know, alpaca socks and stuff. And as time has gone on, it's gained credibility and it really has potentially staked out a claim as this this new uh, synthetic commodity, which people call digital gold for short. But yeah, it, it's kind of difficult to define. I think Bitcoin just chugs along and um, it has, you know, certain qualities that make it um, an asset which people really desire. They try and get a piece of, but it, it, it resists classification. And I think trying to narrow it down too much is is an exercise in frustration. There are definitely people that have specific opinions of what it should be and how it should be used. And those people tend to get frustrated and desert the project for, for alternatives. I think the important thing is staying consistent with the original values, uh, the kind of constitutional values that were embedded in it at inception and resisting you know, political discretion, resisting lobbying, uh, arbitrary changes, which we see all over the place in the kind of public blockchain space. As long as it can do that, uh, stay true to its supply schedule, keep its core properties intact, I think over time is just going to undertake and continue to carry out this process of monetization, which it has been doing for a full decade now. So it's just a function of staying static as the world gets more chaotic around it. And how about you, Alex? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I really agree with Nick. I think that Bitcoin is means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Everyone knows about it. And this year, I think, especially with the Fed's actions and you know, the increasing political instability, uh, especially in the United States, Bitcoin is kind of this weirdly stable thing that's just been chugging along for the last 10 years, one block at a time. And people have been watching it for the last few years, aware of it, and have expected it to blow up, and it hasn't. And, you know, every block that gets added to the chain becomes one more, you know, sign that this thing isn't going away. And I think, you know, as time goes on and as Bitcoin continues to live, more and more people are going to continue to, to take the plunge and, and actually allocate some of their assets to it. And so, you know, for, with our clients, we see people buying for a lot of different reasons, but the, pr the primary one right now has been because of all of the Fed um, money printing. Um, but a few years ago, there were other, people were buying it for other reasons. And Robert, yourself, the man who writes blogs, which could be books, uh, how, do, um, how do you feel about Bitcoin's reputation? I would agree with everything that's been said. And I, you know, I think the concept of Bitcoin actually supersedes money in a lot of ways, but we could zero in on just the concept of money and say that people don't understand that in general. Um, and I think that's very connected to the curriculum that we've all come up under. You know, the Austrian economics is not part of state run curriculum. Um, and Bitcoin really is a first principles disruption to money. You know, money needs to do five things. It needs to be durable, divisible, portable, recognizable, scarce. Not many people understand that. And because Bitcoin is superior calls across all five properties, it's actually disruptive to gold. So they we're talking about disrupting a technology that's been with us for 5,000 years. So it's a, it's a big, uh, not to be cliche, but a really major paradigm shift 
And I agree that the because it's agnostic to politics, the more chaos that's going on in the world, the more money is being printed, that the neutral settlement layer will capture all of that value. And, you know, clearly Bitcoin's far and away the leader in that space. And, you know, from a, just a reputational standpoint, Bitcoin's a peaceful protest wrapped in a get-rich-quick scheme, basically. The more people that are marginalized by the state, I think, find their way into Bitcoin. And that's just what's feeding its growth in the medium and long term. The, the reason I asked it is that, as you know, I've got a show and I've, I've pretty much interviewed everyone and I'm trying to expand now into um, getting involved in conversations with people who aren't in the world. And and I'm almost avoiding mentioning it's a Bitcoin show because I'm fearful of the reactions it, it brings out in people. And one of the most interesting shows I heard recently, did did you all hear v, Vijay Boyapati on Tom Woods? So what the really interesting start of that point is Tom Woods being a libertarian, you would think naturally loves Bitcoin and he's covered Bitcoin, but he said, you just lose me. You peer to peer, what knows what he said, you just lose me. But what was really good is like he got, he asked VJ to explain Bitcoin and, and it's actually something when I try and do myself, I really struggle to just instantly think, well, how do you actually explain Bitcoin? There is simple ways, but we often get lost in it. I'll start with you, Robert, because you know, we talked about this over Telegram over the last few days. What would you explain Bitcoin? How would you explain what Bitcoin is? You know, I always tell people the rabbit, so to speak, that takes you down the rabbit hole is that question, what is money? I think you really have to pursue that question assiduously to get a good answer. And I think you land on that Austrian economic bedrock of like why gold became money. And people assign this a lot of characteristics. I narrow it down to five, which makes sense in my mind um, that I've already laid out. But I think once you answer that question and you understand why gold was selected on the free market, that that gives you the lens through which to evaluate Bitcoin properly. Um, Not to say that that captures all of what Bitcoin is, because it also adds a lot of other things. Like it gives us this uh, mechanism for monetizing surplus energy. You know, it's the most securable money in history. So it's, you know, more or less theft proof if properly secured. And when you have, you know, government business models that are premised on theft via inflation and taxation, it's disruptive to that business model. So I think, you know, it's this major force shifting us away from the monopolistic business practices and the market for money that we see with government, putting us, pushing us back toward a free market paradigm in the world. I think you made an interesting point when you mentioned that we aren't taught Austrian economics at school and we don't really learn money. Money is like a language. It's like breathing. It's just something we naturally learn as a child. And and we don't tend to really think about it. But perhaps maybe if you're living in Lebanon right now, you are thinking about it. Or Zimbabwe right now, you are thinking about it. And you have done in Argentina. And Nick, how important do you think that is? Do yeah. you think as we see you know, a natural flight to the dollar. We're going to see more currency collapses around the world. Do you think it's going to be a more natural lead into Bitcoin for people? I always find it funny that people challenge Bitcoiners to point out examples of fiat currencies failing when you just have to look at the front page of the Financial Times to find recent examples of currency collapse. It's literally happening in in Lebanon right now. Argentina just defaulted for the ninth time. Places like Turkey and Iran are experiencing high inflation. Venezuela and Zimbabwe are in a complete state of currency collapse. So you don't have to look far. And crucially, you don't just have to look for 
you know, the most desperate nations with terrible governance, you have to look at middle income nations, which because of the capriciousness of the state and mismanagement, their currencies collapse and the savings of regular middle class folks got confiscated, savings they've accumulated over decades. You know, Lebanon is not a poor nation. It is um, firmly in the middle of the pack. And now, you know, regular folks in Lebanon have their savings completely obliterated uh, because of the currency failure. So, you know, we're not talking about hypotheticals here. We're talking about something that affects tens of millions of people around the world. I would say having a unreliable currency is the default globally. Having a reliable currency like the dollar is the exception. And even the dollar itself is inflationary, as we know. Most people globally don't really have access to the dollar. So, you know, when you're looking at it from the US perspective or from a British or kind of a Western European perspective, you're not experiencing the typical monetary state of affairs for a human being on planet Earth. So I think that's why you have a rejection of of these chaos hedges or these inflation hedges like Bitcoin in the West a lot of the time. People don't understand. Uh, sometimes you see a bit of an Anglo-centrism in this rejection of Bitcoin. You know, why would people be afraid of their government? Why would they fear currency collapse? Well, there's plenty of good reasons if you're willing to look abroad. And that's, you know, that's not to say it can't happen in the U.S. either. We're, we're living in the twilight waning days of Pax Americana of the U.S. empire. We've had a very peaceful hundred years here. That's not the historical norm. You know, a fiat currency regime with a, effectively a single global reserve currency, that is not the historical norm by any means. For the most part, we've had gold as the reserve currency. We've not had a currency that was controlled by the state. So this U.S. empire, which has been a sprawling power, you know, since 1940, uh, it certainly looks to be in decline. And I don't think we're going to have the benefit of the stability in perpetuity. So it's only reasonable to to look to alternatives. And I think Bitcoin is a, is a pretty valid one. When I was in Argentina and I was talking about Bitcoin to people there, it, it was actually a very easy conversation to have. As they'd been through La Coralita, they understood that a currency can collapse and it can be seized by the government. Um, you, you four are obviously based in the States. Uh, Tua, you're originally from Belgium, right? Uh, I'm from the UK. I really struggle, despite the fact that we can see this happening around the world in Lebanon and Zimbabwe right now, struggle to explain to people the risks themselves. Tua, do you believe in first world countries, do you believe in places, most of Europe, the US, the UK, we all believe we're immune from a currency collapse? Yeah, and I don't, you know, you could call it hubris, like, oh, you know, we, we, we're the West and we're fine, which, you know, has been proven to not be enough. Like, you know, Germany was considered to be a, a strong uh, economic power and they did have a current, even, you know, in the 1910s. And then they did have the currency collapse in 1920 with the hyperinflation. And the same with, with France uh, before the, the French Revolution. People thought, you know, France is credit worthy. All the European nations were lending it money and it's it still currency collapsed. But I think there's also a deficit, uh, a real shortage of knowledge. Because, you know, even, you know, if I look at my own backyard, like Operation Gut was a, a currency devaluation right after the Second World War. Like, nobody knows this. <laughs> you know, it's like that. This is recent history. And, and like, uh, Britain had a, a devaluation of over 30% after the Second World War. So, like, these things are not, you know, they're not 
uncommon at all, but financial history is just not part of our curriculum growing up. And it's, it's just sad. It's sad that there is only a small percentage of the population and, you know, people subscribing to things like real vision that are, are actually sufficiently educated in, in how these things go. Um, so yeah, I would definitely, definitely add that as a, but there is a kind of a blindness in the West that like, we just assume we're going to keep chugging along just like we have the past 40 years. I also think not a lot of people really understand the impact of money printing as we're going through these very strange lockdowns. And and uh, I know in the UK, our government is printing hundreds of billions of dollars. In the US, it's been trillions of dollars. I don't think people really understand the impact or what that really means. Are you finding similar, Alex, when you talk to people about this outside of our world? Yeah, I mean, I, I, would, I would actually say that, you know, in, in my experience, the the wealthiest people out there actually do understand this quite well. And they see what's happening. They've had the luxury of, you know, a lot of education, kind of seeing history. People ask me about Executive Order 6102, and they want to know, you know, uh, if I keep my Bitcoin at an institution, will the government be able to take it, right? Because the, the people are starting to see some of the writing on the wall. They're starting to get concerned, especially in the, in the upper classes. I think it's really more kind of the mainstream people who you know, haven't had the luxury of, you know, studying financial history and, and all of that stuff that don't really see what's going on. And they're angry, but they don't really know exactly kind of how to frame that. And so, you know, I, that like, you know, most of my family, right. They, they don't, they've never lived in a world where the U S dollar wasn't a, this thing that you just can rely on. Right. And I think even, you know, even most companies and, and most people, you know, in, in the professional world, have just lived in a world where do the dollar is king. The dollar will always be this unit of account. It's stable. It's there. And they don't even want to start to think about questioning that it's uncomfortable. And so I do think that there's a long way to go, but what, you know, coming back to kind of the original question of, you know, how, do, you know, what, what resonates with people? What is the single biggest thing about Bitcoin that could resonate with somebody who doesn't spend all day thinking about monetary economics? Right. And in my experience, it's been, scarcity, right? There's only ever going to be 21 million of these things. And I, like, people get that, right? Okay. Like, because now, now the human instinct kind of goes, okay, well, I kind of want some just in case. Right. And, uh, I've seen that to be kind of the, the most, um, the thing that resonates most with, with people who aren't kind of deep in this world is, is explaining that there's only ever going to be this amount. And, you know, if you want any, you should get some now. Sure. Just very briefly, as a way to visualize it, because people talk sometimes about the Bitcoin island, uh, and then you kind of claim your little stake on that island. If you look at all urbanized land in the world, I think it's like 3.6 million square kilometers, and you divide that by 21 million, you end up with uh, 41 acres. So like, just as a way to visualize it, it's like, you know, owning one Bitcoin is the equivalent of owning 41 acres of like urbanized land somewhere in the world. Wow, I didn't know that. I'll be stealing that one. Okay, Robert. So it's a big year for Bitcoin potentially. I mean, in in I think in our heads it is. We, we're seeing this um, massive increase in uh, the deficits in most countries, and we're seeing this uh, massive increase in government spending. At the same time, facing economic problems, potential recessions, even depressions. So it's a big year for Bitcoin, but there's never really consensus on what are the most important trends for Bitcoin. And I think that's where some battles come because I think they conf conflict with each other. But do you want to talk about what you see as the biggest trends for this year? And I'll, I'll run this through everyone and I'll keep a note here and then we can work through them. 
Well, I mean, I think we were just touching on one is, you know, the rate of fiat currency production worldwide. It's clearly an accelerant for Bitcoin. Um, in the U.S., M2 production, I think, has increased 12x in the past six months. You know, we've basically expanded the M2 supply $3 trillion, say, in the past six months. The last, or last four months, sorry, the last $3 trillion before that took four years, right? And we're accelerating. Like, it's important to remember that this entire, the entire economic order is basically a leverage-based system. It requires steadily more leverage to remain sustainable. So you can't just... You can't, it's really hard to contract the balance sheet for, for central banks. And I, I really think if you look at the, the 1980 graph, like M2 is full on parabolic. We're at a parabolic, possibly blow off top of some kind here. And to me, that just indicates that we're towards the end game. Like we, no one really knows what the end game is, but we're definitely seeing it come apart at the seams, right? Like the Fed's buying everything. It's become essentially a glorified hedge fund. Fiscal and monetary policy has been pushed to the, the furthest reaches of its exotic forms. And there's clearly social upheaval as a result. Like all these things that, that we know empirically happen when a currency breaks down, like trust is eliminated or trust is compromised and you know society starts to come apart. I think that's a major trend. Another one that is not talked about a lot is... The like because Bitcoin provides a mechanism for converting underused or unused energy sources directly into a globally transactable commodity. There's going to be huge demand for that from like over leveraged energy producers, and frankly, anyone that has access to these types of, of resources. So, you know, like we talk, we're talking to one uh, executive with a, a publicly traded utility in West Texas, and I love the way he put this. He said. The entire North American energy infrastructure, energy grid, was designed for a single hot afternoon in August. Basically saying that there's just tremendous amounts of slack and um, potential for excess energy production in the system. And, you know, so, like their wind farms, sometimes they're like peaking at night, peak production is at night, but peak demand is in the day. And a lot of that energy is just getting curtailed, it's not getting used. So now Bitcoin, just by co-locating Bitcoin mining with these wind farms, you can directly increase their revenue, say four to seven percent, at basically no cost to them. And then for the Bitcoin miner, they get access to wholesale energy markets. So it's like it's a real win-win that I think is going to contribute a lot to demand. And again, I'm just focused on North America, but I'm sure this is the case worldwide. But that's going to be a big, a big uh, force driving Bitcoin adoption. Yeah, I can jump in here. Um, yeah, I was just going to add one another one you mentioned to me as well. It's like the gold disruption. The disruption in gold markets. Yeah. Yeah. So that was actually kind of relevant to, to the point I was going to make. So you have exogenous factors like massive currency printing, and, which is most likely going to result in devaluation. So that's kind of external to Bitcoin, but that obviously affects the way that the world perceives Bitcoin. And then you sort of have endogenous factors. So things that are contained to the Bitcoin markets or the kind of Bitcoin crypto financial infrastructure, which you know some of the folks on this panel are building uh, or financing. And that is something which I think is a little underappreciated, you know, treating Bitcoin not just as this kind of base commodity, which you know kind of like gold sits in vaults, it doesn't do much. Bitcoin improves on that significantly in many dimensions and over several orders of magnitude. So b gold is very difficult to audit, right? Um, it's hard to 
prove to a third party that you own certain gold. And indeed, we've seen a massive scandal recently with all this counterfeit gold circulating global markets. We've also seen this dislocation between the London and the New York gold markets because it's hard to transport gold, it's expensive, and they have different standards for what sorts of gold is suitable for each market. So the, the gold itself isn't fungible, it sits in these little walled gardens. And fundamentally, that's because gold is costly to transmit and it's hard to verify some inbound gold. You kind of have to re-verify it if it's exiting a trusted supply chain. Now with Bitcoin, that's not really a problem. Not only can I easily prove to you that I own some Bitcoin, you can prove to me cryptographically, I can also verify and audit the entire supply of all the Bitcoin that exists in the entire world. Now that is something radically different compared to gold. With gold, we just have these vague estimates. Maybe we think there's $9 trillion worth of gold uh, you know, circulating. With Bitcoin, we can verify down to the last Satoshi how many Bitcoins exist. And so this matters, I think, because now we have entities which are custodial entities, which are taking advantage of these properties. They're starting to prove to depositors that they have the Bitcoin they claim they own. It's also easier as a depositor to withdraw your coins, to take final settlement. That is what holds some of these custodial entities accountable. So we have them. We have custodians, banks, exchanges, brokers, and Bitcoin. You know, I'm sure Alex can chime in here. But it's also easier as an individual to hold those kind of trusted middlemen accountable to withdraw your coins from them or demand that they prove their solvency on kind of a constant basis. And that's kind of an incremental shift, I think, coming to treat Bitcoin as this high power collateral, which is really it really shines in that in that context relative to something like gold. Just to jump well, in Alex, and add one specific I was going to say, Alex, you, you, you should probably, if you're going to jump in there, um, because Nick referred to your business, not everyone listening will know that you run <laughs> River Financial and what that is. So perhaps just explain what River Financial is. And, and also just, I think what Nick is alluding to there is that whole proof of reserves. Is this something you're doing or considering? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, at River Financial, we service a lot of, individual clients. Uh, so people come to us to buy Bitcoin and we provide Bitcoin financial services to people all over the United States. So I kind of have a behind the scenes view of what's happening in the markets. And I, the, for me, you know, the most interesting trend here is the individual and people who you never would have thought making allocations into Bitcoin. Uh, and I think that that trend is going to continue and accelerate over the coming years. Everyone from you know, uh, you know, 65 year old women in the Midwest putting a large chunk of their savings, you know, into Bitcoin to the sophisticated East Coast investor making really large allocations. We're seeing, you know, that all across the board. And I think that's going to continue. That's a very interesting story that I think, you know, is kind of starting to be told, but um, is, is, is just starting to materialize. And then on the proof of reserves thing, I, what, you know, what a lot of, in my experience, what a lot of people find very intriguing about Bitcoin is that, even though it's this very intimidating thing that they're just for, for people new to Bitcoin, it's very intimidating, but they're interested in, 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 in um, getting started and they've been waiting for somebody who can make it easy for them. And then they learn, Oh, I can store this thing myself. If I really want to, if I don't want to trust this company to hold my Bitcoin for me, I can hold it myself, or I can have some sort of proof that this company has my Bitcoin. And so we're, they kind of, they kind of are starting to see that there's this world that could exist where there's a lot more guarantees around their money they're the, that, that they could work with the financial institution that they're choosing to trust, but they don't have to trust them. Right. And we see, we see a lot of interest there. So we see interest in 
not necessarily store like, you know, self-custodying today from our clients. Well, we have our sophisticated clients who do self-custody, but then the clients who are new to Bitcoin and really like that they can self-custody at some point once they get more comfortable with this stuff. And then with proof of reserves, this is something that we are very interested in, in providing someday. There's a lot of operational uh, challenges with proof of reserves. There's a lot of pros and cons, and I'd be happy to talk about those. But yeah, being, being, able, but being able to prove to somebody cryptographically that you have their assets under management is very interesting to people. Tua, before I start uh, diving into this, is there anything with regards to trends this year that we've not mentioned that you think may be an important trend over the next, say, 12 months? Yeah, sure. But as a preface, I want to say, like for anybody listening who's new to Bitcoin, it's totally fine to not be aware of any of the trends that are going on. Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It has been the same for 10 years. And ultimately, it's, you know, what you can do with Bitcoin is a self-directed insurance policy. Like you can buy a little bit and that's going to insure basically your entire asset portfolio against very particular risks. But that being said, I, I see as a trend kind of based on what Alex is saying, and, and uh, I, I agree with that, like the, the auditability, but multi-sig storage, like the idea that you can you can have multiple parties signing together to then make a transaction happen is really, really appealing. Also for, um, you know, if you're thinking about inheritance strategies and things like that, but, you know, it's not theoretically, like in, in you can really build um, a wallet that is stored on multiple continents like that's where it's going to go is that ultimately and this is basically the new offshore banking like that's that's really where we're heading to so i think that's a major trend and we're seeing significant adoption of this multi-sig technology so i hadn't heard that derivatives markets are are exploding which i think is an important part of the institutionalization of bitcoin because it means that people who want or institutions who want to get involved can get very kind of um, sophisticated exposure. Like they can choose what type of exposure they get to this asset. Uh, because for example, if you just hold Bitcoin, you, you're facing that volatility. And so there's there's ways to deal with that. And so very conservative companies who may want to get involved in the Bitcoin space, but don't want the volatility, well, they can use features and options to hedge themselves. Think about like utility companies or mining companies or energy companies that want to get involved. They can, they can similar to how airlines, when they get involved, you know, in a way they have to be exposed to the oil market so they can, they can buy oil, but then be hedged against the volatility. So anyway, I think derivatives are an important trend. And then uh, what we'll also start seeing in 2020, 2021 is asset issuance on top of the Bitcoin network. So we'll see Bitcoin come into its own as more of an ecosystem, as almost like a financial internet. And the idea that you, for issuing a new a new asset that you need a new token that's going to go away like it's going to you're going to be able to do that in within the bitcoin ecosystem so these icos are are going to basically become just securities issuances in the same secure environment and i'm talking about the liquid sidechain there may be some other things in the works but i think that's the contender for becoming the main platform where assets will be issued next up i talked to nick Chua, robert and alex more about what is next for bitcoin but before that, I've got a message from my amazing sponsors. Okay, Sportsbet. Have you checked out sportsbet.io yet? The best place for online gaming. And guess what? They accept Bitcoin. They're such Bitcoin badasses. Such badasses that they put a Bitcoin logo on a Premier League shirt on Watford's shirt. So cool. Anyway, 
it is great to have football back. It was great to see Liverpool win the league. It's also great to have Serie A back and Liga. It's just good to have football back. And with sportsbet.io, you have the chance to win big. You can take part in their weekly leaderboard promotion. You can win signed shirts by Lionel Messi and Christian Ronaldo. And you can claim cash prizes and free bets. If you want to find out more, head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions. Sportsbet is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T. Next up is my newest sponsor, Casa. They are the premier brand in Bitcoin security. I've been talking about this for a few weeks now. I'd let mine slip. I was worried. I was thinking, shit, I really need to get this together. So I reached out to the team. I was like, I'm going to sign up. I want to be a customer. So I did it. And you know what? I've got so much peace of mind now from three different angles. Firstly, I can't screw it up myself. Like if I lose a wallet or I lose a key, I'm safe because I can swap a key out. I can't get hacked because I've got a multi-sig in place and I'm also protecting myself physically as I got my keys distributed. It was a bit of a process to go through and I learned so much, but I'm so glad to have it in place. Now, I signed up as a Casa Platinum, which is $150 a month and gives me a three or five multi-sig. If you're interested in trying them out, they do also have a gold option, which is $10 a month. That will give you a more robust security protection for your Bitcoin. And with a single hardware wallet, you get triple the security protecting your Bitcoin. So it really is a no-brainer to improve your Bitcoin security. They've got a free one-month trial. You can find that out at trial.keys.casa. And if you want to check out Platinum or Diamond, just head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. Nick, I'm going to point the next question at you I, I don't know why i'm picking you but well i think i do but one of the biggest trends here which robert mentioned is that bitcoin is a great hedge hopefully against a lot of the government print in this moment i saw it on twitter today it's essentially your chaos insurance so there is an imperative right now for potentially a lot of people to consider Bitcoin or there's going to become an imperative over the next 12 months where maybe there's going to be an urgency around people coming to Bitcoin. And perhaps with that, that there's going to have to be an acceptance. Do you think there's going to have to be acceptance that we might have to con- compromise some of our principles, perhaps around custody, perhaps around privacy, perhaps about people operating those? Because some people are just going to want to get exposure into Bitcoin and maybe won't have the time to become fully hardcore Bitcoiners who operate Tor and and, and operate a node. Yeah, I don't think you, you know, people do have this list of requirements for being, you know, like a dyed-in-the-wool card-carrying Bitcoiner. Uh, I think that's, you know, frankly irrelevant for most people that have exposure to Bitcoin. There's a lot of ways to engage with the asset uh, in a in a fully custodial way, in kind of a collaborative custody, or you can take full custody and run your own node. It's not going to be suitable for everybody to have the most kind of trustless, trust minimized experience where you're, you know, broadcasting your own transactions. The important thing is that that option exists for sure, and if the network becomes too difficult to run and too much data is being pushed through the network and it's basically impossible to, to run a node as a, a normal individual, then there's a failure that's occurred there. But as long as that optionality exists, I think it's absolutely fine for a certain set of people to engage with the network in a fully custodial manner, even through the lens of financial products, you know, true intermediation. That's fine. In fact, that's how probably a, you know, a good fraction of the world will want to engage with the asset. And it's unrealistic to expect everybody to run a node. As I said, I think the important thing is that the option remains to do that. And how do you feel about 
about this, Robert? And do you feel there's potential? Some conflicts here. Another one I would I would put out there is that this desire to take down central banks with Bitcoin that requires this kind of horrible term, but mass adoption. It, it requires a a lot more people to be exposed to Bitcoin. But in doing so, maybe we have to compromise some of our our internal Bitcoin desires to have everybody transacting privately. Well, to Nick's point, I think as long as the option is there, the the ethos remains sound. Just to, to touch on, you know, we talked about gold a little bit as being a driver uh, for Bitcoin adoption. This story just broke yesterday that Wuhan King Gold, they had actually borrowed like three billion US over the past five years. And then when their creditors went to liquidate the collateral, they found that a lot of the gold was just copper, gilded copper, mm-hmm. basically. Like that, I think more stories like that are just going to push demand into Bitcoin. Actually, I've said this before, I view the market cap for gold has pent up demand for Bitcoin. Again, you know, the free market tends to zero in on truth. And we know that Bitcoin is objectively better than gold. And that's what makes it so interesting because gold is, you know, it's at the foundation of central banks. I mean, even though our dollar is not necessarily redeemable for gold, like the entire power structure is premised on controlling the gold supply. And, um, you know, that's where you get, I guess, a bit more into the the radical aspects of Bitcoin, like how it's disruptive to our concept of the nation state, um, how it's disruptive to, to central banking. Yeah, I think it's just where people's money goes, their mind tends to follow, you know, and I found that sort of uh, speculators become holders over time. Holders become crazy guys like us. And uh, it's interesting to see see that aspect of the world playing out because I think when you you really start to look at history a little more deeply you know, I think it was Nietzsche said that he who has a why can bear any how it's like it's unbelievable to think that the state might actually lose its monopoly on money it's never had that throughout all of history but for the first time there's a, a technology that can possibly drive that change so it's it's a really interesting time to be alive do we have any gold bugs here anyone here interested in gold so in, an interesting point like on gold, that, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I like gold. Yeah, it's weird to me that Bitcoiners are always considered, like, you know, put, put forth as being opposed to gold. I think Bitcoin and gold are, are you know, like mutual technologies. People tend to have affection for both. But but on a long I, enough time frame, only one wins. No, I, I think people are always going to want physical gold. There's, there's like 5,000 years of accumulated cultural affinity for it. So I think they'll they'll both exist. Maybe here's one I, way to I, think. I, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, Tur. It's just maybe one way to think about it, kind of going back to like the definition of Bitcoin. Like my shortest definition that I've been able to come up with for Bitcoin is, is that it's a mechanism for converting energy into financial reliability. And, and I agree with Robert, like it is a more efficient um, mechanism than gold is. Like in gold, you dig it out of the ground and then you have to refine it and, and you know, cast it into bars and then it goes into the vault and then you issue certificates. Uh, that's kind of how it goes. But still, gold is more, you know, financially reliable than the political system that we have, because basically they've been trying to shortcut all that work. And, and they've been saying like, oh, if we just put you know, some bearded guys in a room, like they can, they can come up with, they can produce this stability, uh, which is kind of what a lot of the altcoins I've been arguing as well. It's like, we don't need this cost, this um, cost prohibitive proof of work. We can do it in another way with voting and things like that. So that's how I look at it is that like, yes, uh, gold has value because it is 
it produces this stability. Like once you verify the gold, it's actually really scarce. It's just a bit challenging to layer societal functions on top of it because the most efficient way is to put it in a vault. Uh, like Fort Knox, I think, has not been audited since 1953. Like nobody really knows what's what's in there. So, so, but whereas with Bitcoin, anyone who has a full node can verify any Bitcoin balance at any time. Like that's just incredible from anywhere in the world. That is just unprecedented. Yeah, and and I do want to add something, and this is going to be this. This might sound a little bit heretical, um, but I, Bitcoin and gold have very different guarantees. If you look at the history of cryptography and the history of mathematics, it's very clear that there is no guarantee that cryptography. The, the cryptography that we use in Bitcoin is not going to be broken someday. And there are problems that we can't prove are hard, which is, which is kind of like in this underlying assumption in cryptography and, and the primitives that make up Bitcoin. You know, and, and if I had to bet money is what's called ECDSA is the kind of the digital signature algorithm used um, in Bitcoin when we're switching to another algorithm called Schnorr signatures. But it's all based on this mathematical assumption that the elliptic curve discrete log problem is hard, right? It's, it, but that's it, it's irrelevant like how, how the math works, but th that's an assumption uh, that, that's protecting Bitcoin. If that assumption is ever broken through a mathematical breakthrough or a computational breakthrough, we're going to have some problems. Bitcoin's going to have to evolve and change, and, and there's an assumption there that it will be able to, right? Um, whereas gold, it's, it's, there are physical realities and physical guarantees and, and chemical properties, right? And the assumption there is that we're not going to find some cheap, inexpensive way to, uh, you know, convert other elements into gold, right? So each of these have different assumptions in their in the scarcity and in, 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 in the security of um, the asset. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind when comparing these. Bitcoin's also changed my kind of thoughts and relationship with gold. So I, I looked to buy some gold recently, and uh, the first step was uh, people made me very fearful of the fact that I might buy something that isn't real gold. But actually trying to source physical gold, not some representation of gold in a vault somewhere, because I hold my Bitcoin, I wanted to hold gold, and actually trying to source physical gold itself is very difficult. So that was quite an interesting to go through. Okay, so look, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of different themes going on, and I think different people are pulling in different directions based on what their priorities are, what they think uh, the the priorities are um, for for their line of business. I'd be interested to hear from you all, and uh, I'll start with you, you two. What what are the kind of priorities or the things that you think you're going to be focused on with regards to Bitcoin? Uh, you know, where do you think you'll be spending your, your time? I'll just throw one in myself personally. I, I, I'm trying to expand myself into having conversations with people who are discussing uh, societal issues, global issues, monetary issues, who maybe wouldn't normally talk about Bitcoin. That's where I'm going to be focused in time. But but how about yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be focusing basically more on just my, my personal life and family and then my, my uh, the, the, the things that I'm working on is I'm, I'm trying to project five or 10 years into the future because I think things are just going to get ugly and it's frustrating to just look at everyday news and, and just see things deteriorate. But in a way, it is it is necessary. We have to like wipe away all this debt and, uh, and kind of start from scratch. Uh, so it's going to be, it'll have some silver linings, I think. Um, I, I do want to take the opportunity because I think it's rare to be able to talk to an audience where maybe a lot of people have not had Bitcoin exposure. Just briefly to kind of reiterate that I think Bitcoin is um, a self-directed insurance policy. There's like a unique opportunity to to get some exposure to that. And, and uh, there's so much said about crypto. And, and to me, the, the essence is like just buy a little bit, start with that, and then make a plan about, you know, 
storage, like how are you going to store it? And also think ahead, like, are you going to then diversify that storage? Like, of course, first time you buy, you store it in one place. But then I think it's a good idea to think about storing it in different places because there is no FDIC. It's not insured. If you lose your keys or is this, this company goes bust, it's over. It's game over and you have to rebuy your Bitcoin. So think about that. Also make a plan for the price. Bitcoin prices, Bitcoin rallies are nothing like you've ever seen. Prices go up 10x, 100x in short periods of time. And so you want to think beforehand, like, what are you going to do when that happens? Also think about tax consequences. Like, you know, if you have a plan about selling and make sure you know the tax consequences of what you're doing, because a lot of people got burned in 2017. I know like this maybe doesn't sound likely because Bitcoin has been, you know, kind of moving sideways for two years, but I... I have a lot of conviction that we will see another massive rally that's going to set our hair on fire. And it's not about that, right? It's the insurance policies that's going to start paying out. That's all that it is once uh, we see that 10 or 100x rally. So that's just something I, I wanted to get out there. I'll uh, I'll pass over to you next, next, Nick. Yeah, as Tor says, it's easy to look at the headlines and read the media and get very discouraged about the trajectory of Western civilization. It certainly looks like we're going to potentially have a kind of a stagflationary decade, maybe a lost decade like Japan suffered in the 90s, and potentially a very chaotic decade characterized by a lot of political violence, which is already emerging. And I try not to focus on that. I think the important thing is we have a very small mandate here. This is a small little niche asset, but the important thing is to render it as sound and reliable as possible so that when the world needs it, it can be ready to serve. And Bitcoin is a young asset. It's still monetizing. It's, it's unreliable in certain ways. Uh, the you know, custody is difficult. It's challenging. But it's our job as you know, Bitcoin enthusiasts, entrepreneurs, financiers, and you know, content producers to help safeguard its essential properties such that it can be a truly apolitical, neutral asset for the entire world, regardless of who they are, regardless of their political affiliation or race or anything like that, it's important that it is truly neutral and that it protects the individual against the government and against any kind of domineering financial power. So that's what I see as my mandate is uh, helping finance those entrepreneurs that are building for that world. Robert, yourself, you uh, you sent me a few key points in preparation for this, but uh, where you think people should be spending time on. What about yourself? Uh, well, I'm spending time is I I really think collaborative custody is super interesting, and we're going to move to this world where where you will have different key quorums, like maybe for your business, for your personal, um, and then that that sort of spins directly into inheritance planning, which I think is another very important aspect of Bitcoin. So. I'm spending time for myself trying to figure that aspect out. And then two on like the investment side, I'm really looking at financial services firms that most closely emulate the trust and minimization of the protocol. Because again, we have, you know, it was, everything's built on top of gold, basically paper and institutional promises built on top of gold that we now think a lot of that will collapse to uh, the software. You know, the, the, the mantra in Bitcoin is don't trust verify. So we'll move away from this need for the consumer to trust TD Ameritrade or JP Morgan because they've been around for 100 years to a model that they can just verify things cryptographically. So I think the financial services firms that provide that function 
will actually outcompete a lot of the legacy institutions in the space. And then, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time reading and writing about Bitcoin as well. I think that's very important. I, I think it is a, a complex domain. Uh, the analogy of, you know, six blind guys encountering an elephant, all describing it differently. So that's kind of how we are with Bitcoin. But it's important for, you know, as Nick said, it, it needs to be there when people need it. So I think the, the educational aspect of that is informing them of what they're dealing with and informing people of, of the historical circumstances we're living in. It's very easy, you know, when we're living through it to not understand how significant of an era we're in or how quickly things are changing. Um, but often in retrospect, I, think, I forget who it was, like said that there's decades where nothing happens and then, you know, years where decades happen. Like, it feels like we might be going into one of those times. And I think Bitcoin is a, uh, a fulcrum to a lot of that change. Yeah, I think that was Raul who said that potentially. Um, and yourself, Alex? Yeah, so I completely agree with Robert. Um, and we're building that financial institution at River, river.com. And so my focus is making it as easy as possible for people, uh, individuals, to accumulate Bitcoin and store it with us, self-custody it provide them the full suite of um, services so that they can uh, and hold their hands from the very beginning and, and bringing all these new people into Bitcoin um, from day one, buying Bitcoin all the way to someday down the road, um, choosing to self custody um, or, or providing them more advanced services. And I think there's, there's a huge opportunity there to build this financial institution that people can trust, but don't have to trust. And I think the, the, the companies and the financial institutions that move in that direction are, are going to be the ones that last for the long term. All right, we've got uh, five minutes to go, and we've potentially got an audience, as Tua said, that is um, maybe not exposed to Bitcoin right now. So um, got about a minute left each to talk about this, but kind of just throw out one prediction, one thing you think might happen over the next kind of 12, 24 months, and one thing you'd like to see happen. I'm going to start with you, Robert. Um, I agree with Tur's sentiment earlier that we are moving into a massive bull market. Um, there are a lot of people that thought that 2017 was kind of a one-off, that we'll never see a move like that again. But if we look at Bitcoin's short history and, you know, the macroeconomic conditions it's designed to ensure against, we're in a perfect storm, frankly. You know, political uncertainty is at a peak. Uh, monetary expansion is is also at a peak. So I think, I really think the next Bitcoin, because it does go through kind of psychological layers, uh, and I know it sounds radical today, but as, as we know, Bitcoin does move geometrically quickly. I think when it breaks 100,000, the world's going to really have a, a sharp wake-up call. I, I, I think we haven't seen anything yet, so to speak. 2017 was kind of a warm-up for what's to come. If that's in 12, 24, 36 months, five years, who knows? But the pressures supporting its value proposition are at an all-time high. Okay, you got about a minute, Nick. Yeah, so what I think is likely to happen in the next 24 months is a wave of sovereign currency failures, similar to the Asian financial crisis in the late 90s, similar to in the post-Soviet Union, a lot of sovereign currencies fail. You see it at times of dollar strength. You see it at times of global dislocation. It's regional. It's contagious. We've begun to see some distress in lots of sovereign currencies when there's a lot of debt. The world is very indebted in emerging markets. And um, unfortunately, I think it's going to immiserate tens or hundreds of millions of people. 
And for some of those people, they will be able to use crypto financial rails to exit their sovereign local currency. And they can go to Bitcoin, they can go to the US dollar, there's stable coins on these rails. Uh, so I think this is going to be a big story of the next year. Alex, over to you. Yeah. So, you know, honestly, I have no idea what's going to happen macroeconomically over the next year. Um, you know, I, I don't, but I do know, or I'm very confident that more and more new people to Bitcoin are going to be buying it because it serves the purpose that they, that they see for it. And they, and they realize that. And everyone, as we discussed, has a different story for Bitcoin and more and more people are going to come to it. Uh, and that's, that's what I know. All right, Tio, you get to close us out on this. Yeah, so to me, the, the yes, inflation is the big theme the next 12 to 24 months. What The reason why is that the narrative is changing. Like, there's a step change. In 2008, the question was, like, should we even have these bailouts? Right now, that's off the table. It's only about how much, how fast, and that scares me, and that's exactly what happened uh, on, you know, the the the. the 17 uh, late 1780s in france where they they ended up with hyperinflation and a revolution one way to look at the markets is like look at the lens of gold like like put that on put your gold glasses on and look at the markets denominate your charts in gold and like really have a look at what's going on that's uh, very enlightening to me at least for measures of inflation look at the chapwood index which measures cost of living in the united states uh look at shadowstats.com like that will show you that it's actually already 10 percent for the past five years. Um, 2017 was a greed-driven rally in Bitcoin. 2020 and 2021, I think, is going to be driven by fear. And that is just very, very explosive. Just like we saw people stand in line to buy toilet paper and beef, I think they're going to stand in line to buy Bitcoin and gold. So the time to get insurance is before your house is on fire. And I think that's now. Like Our house is not yet on fire. We have some time to, to get insurance. I think that's a perfect close. Thanks, Tua. Listen, appreciate you all. Um, I, I've got to know you all over the last uh, year, two years. Appreciate you all coming on, joining this panel. I think it's a very interesting time for Bitcoin. Uh, I share a lot of your sentiments, especially, Nick, with regards to sovereign currencies. Uh, I have my fears. But uh, I think it was a great panel. I appreciate you all, and, and good luck with everything you do. All right. What do you think of that? Did you enjoy that? Bit of a monster show, right? A monster panel. But what else would you expect with a lineup like this? makes me it actually makes me want to make more shows like this maybe i should start arranging some of my own nick tour and robert have all been on the show before it's definitely worth going back and checking out those shows i've left links for those in the show notes i haven't had alex on before but i would definitely get him on in a future show i would love to talk to him more about what he thinks about bitcoin Again, thanks to Real Vision and Rao Powell for letting me host these panels at their conference, giving me free reign. Really appreciated it. I think we got a couple of really good panels out of it. If you haven't checked out Real Vision, please do. It is an awesome platform. All the links are in the show notes. I really highly recommend you go and check out the content they're creating. Anyway, thanks for listening. If you do want to get in touch, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcointed.com. Outside of that, have a great weekend, and I will see you all soon.